Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. Welcome to today's episode. I'm your intrepid host, Lee, and I hope that you are enjoying your March and your 2021 and are all staying nice and safe and healthy. I'm joined today by a guest host that you've heard on the show a couple episodes ago. I am joined again by friend of the pod and friend in real life, Amanda Helton, my arty nerdy friend. Hello. Hello. Nice to be here again. <laughs> you've you've come back to uh, I've, I've to strengthen back. your brand and continue talking about sculpture. My arty nerdy brand. <laughs> your arty strong. nerdy brand. <laughs> yeah. um, how have you been doing since we talked about Michelangelo? I'm good. I'm like super stoked to not be talking about a white dude, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think so, it's always yeah. a good. I think it's always a good day in my life when when white men are not like in the forefront of my mind. It's pretty good. (laughs) So, Amanda, uh, why don't you introduce yourself for folks who have not gotten a chance to listen to the Michelangelo episode. Just tell us a little bit about you and how we met and what you are uh, super interested in in your life. Yeah, well, I'm Amanda. I use she, her pronouns. Originally from the Southeast, generally speaking, uh, East Tennessee, Sevier County, the birthplace of Dolly Parton. I will shamelessly plug... (laughs) Again, that I have met Dolly Parton more than once, and that's my only claim to fame at this point in my life. Um, (laughs) I have a master's degree in art history with a concentration in museum training from the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. I work at an art museum uh, currently doing actually like digital strategy and technology. So it's kind of a weird thing that I got an art history degree (laughs) and then I ended up kind of working in technology because... The art world is is full of luddites. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Doing. The ways in which we're like, mm. <laughs> just like, you know, I I don't mean to burn burn them or anything, but I mean it's just the way it is. You know, like those aren't skills that generally get taught to art history majors, right? Right. So. I mean, I feel like you know museums in general, unless you're like a science or tech center, tend to be a little bit uh, right behind the times in some ways. Absolutely. Uh, Technologically speaking. Technologically. (laughs) Meanwhile, you have like librarians who are like digital everything. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Librarians are like cutting edge. Right. And the the person that we're going to be talking about today, too, is someone that I had no idea about. Mm -hmm. This has been a lovely learning experience for me because I I knew nothing about any of these people. And Amanda came to me and was like, hey, hey, I want to talk about this person. And I was like, what? This is so cool. Um, So I'm really excited about that. Um, Before we get into the episode, I just want to thank everybody who has uh, so far filled out our first ever listener survey. You can go to historyisgaypodcast.com slash survey and take our listener questionnaire. We just wanted to get some information about those who are listening to the show and what you like, what you would like to see more of or less of. 
of from us here at the show, what you've been really interested in, where you'd like to see the show go in the future. And if you fill it out by the end of April 2021, then you will be entered into a lotto to receive a piece of History is Gay merch. So that'll be a fun little perk there. Today, we are going to be talking about someone who, as I said, is brand new to me, but is not at all brand new to the art world. We're going to be talking about a woman named Mary Edmonia Wildfire Lewis, who was a sculptor in 1800s uh, in the U.S. She basically blew up the art world, uh, was the first internationally recognized African-American and indigenous artist in the U.S., and she ended up joining an extremely gay group of women expatriate sculptors in Rome. And so I feel like we're getting some nice precursors to the left bank lesbians in the Paris salons with Natalie Clifford Barney, which was a delight for me to learn about. For content warnings, we will be discussing things like the transatlantic slave trade, mentions of racial violence, anti-Black and anti-Indigenous sentiments and stereotypes, and fetishization of Black and Indigenous cultures. So if these are things that you want to avoid hearing about, we will be putting specific time codes for certain things and just be aware that we're dealing with mid to late 1800s. And so some of the sentiments towards this person were of that time. Obviously, this is going to be a people-focused episode, so we're going to go straight into some historical background and then Edmonia's bio, and we'll end the podcast with how gay were they, our personal ranking about how likely it is that they weren't straight. Uh, Amanda, is there anything that you would like to talk about or plug before we dive in to the wondrous world of Edmonia Lewis? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe just up top, I'll just say... I came across Edmonia Lewis when I was an undergrad, and I just thought she was really interesting and so singular in her time and accomplished so much, and there was very little information on her out there at the time. And so now doing this project and doing research, I, it was delightful to see that like there had been so many more things written since I was in college and like things have come to light about where she was buried and that sort of stuff. So it's so fun to see like the mark of time happen mm-hmm. where some time has passed and people have sort of discovered her academically and there's just more to dig into. So this was honestly like a continuation of that joy that I experienced in undergrad of like discovering her and like this whole like group of artists. And I was really looking for an alternative to like writing about white male artists (laughs) that were just like constantly coming up and I was like this can't be it like I need more (laughs) so uh she I feel like she came up when I was yeah (laughs) and like further proof for the reasoning (laughs) for the fact that like history never stops like we don't just have oh and that was it like we're constantly finding Mm -hmm. new things so continue doing history everyone all right so uh we're going to we're gonna do a little bit of kind of social and historical context for the time period so let's dive into what the 1800s was looking like Mm -hmm. as we join the story of Edmonia Lewis. Right. So the 19th century, uh, 19th century America, we have obviously the Industrial Revolution. So we have this transition from a farming-based economy to an industrial economy. And I I got this quote that I feel 
wraps it up really well in a way that I much better than I could do myself. So I'll just read that. (laughs) The new nation experienced a shift from farming economy to an industrial one, major westward expansion, displacement of native peoples, rapid advances in technology and transportation and a civil war. So (laughs) fair amount going on. Rising populism and this sort of idea of the people and the labor movement and people sort of waking up to collective power, Jacksonian democracy that sort of emphasized expanding suffrage, um, but, you know, for white men over 21 only, Uh, manifest destiny, uh, laissez-faire economics, and this sort of helped usher in the the sort of gilded age with the Vanderbilts and the robber parents and all this stuff, wielding their sort of power to control politics and business. Um, Basically stealing oil, taking over everything. And, and you know, our first uh, our first (laughs) taste of like the millionaire billionaire class ruling over everything and fucking everything up. Yeah. And just like buying yeah, just like buying politicians buying the and world. buying the world. Yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So blame the Industrial Revolution for unfettered <laughs> yeah. capitalism, honestly. <laughs> yes. As far as the sort of artistic production of the period and sort of I, I always like to think about that and sort of what were the conditions of that. And in particular, we're talking about a female artist. And I think it's important to remember that access to art education and instruction was really difficult for women at this time. So it would have been even more difficult for women of color and that there was just this general culture around women artists that there was just this disbelief that women had any talent that women could be artists um so that was just the sort of undercurrent that every woman artist was fighting against for example i I remember learning about this in undergrad and just being like enraged the pennsylvania academy allowed women to look at nude classical plaster casts only at fixed hours on ladies days (laughs) ladies days come look at some plaster junk yeah so it was just like really weird there were a lot of barriers Many European academies weren't open to women, and it was particularly difficult to get instruction in anything to do with anatomy or life drawing. Like, you can't be a lady and look at nudes, you know? How dare you be alone in a room with a naked man for anything (laughs) other than sexual purpose? Yeah. And you're unmarried. (laughs) Yes. So it was rough. It was rough for women artists during this time. There were lots of accusations of plagiarism. Very often their works would get, I mean, and this happened has happened throughout, <laughs> throughout history, literally everywhere, female artists getting their works attributed to men or like their mentors or someone who taught them and that sort of thing is, is very common. Definitely happened. Their careers were often ruined by gossip. There was just like there were just a lot of social forces um, pressing on women who were trying to do anything outside of the private sphere um, where women were really restricted at that time. Well, and even even within that, like even within the artistic world, there were some areas of mm-hmm. art and artistic production that were considered more acceptable for right. you know, feminine enjoyment. Things like drawing mm-hmm. and drafting and uh, miniature making, painting. Right. Those were things that were considered like more soft and feminine and things that women could do if they were going to go outside the box from homemaking and making art. Meanwhile, you have this group of women Women who were sculptors, who was an ex- which was an extra level of kind of going against the norm. 
Absolutely, uh, and we'll yeah. we'll talk a little bit more about that. But that was for multiple reasons deemed something that was inherently masculine. Yes. So absolutely. you know, nice queer feelings about lady sculptors just in general. Yes, of course. It's a very important point to note that it was unusual for women to be sculptors. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm certainly not going to complain about the lovely muscles that surely emerge on these lady <laughs> sculptors from all that all that chiseling. So <laughs> yes. um, I'm, I'm certainly not one to balk at lady muscles. <laughs> um, so uh, yes. another big thing that was going on at this time was abolition. The 1800s brought with it this movement, which was working to end enslavement of African-Americans in the United States. It originated in like the late 1700s, first in Britain with folks speaking out against Britain's role in the slave trade. And then Quaker groups in the United States began working initially to abolish slavery in the U.S. Philadelphia was a main site of abolitionist work. It was most things were kind of centered in the north and specifically New England area with the first organized abolitionist group forming in Philadelphia in 1775. It gained huge momentum in the 1830s, where you started getting publications of abolitionist newspapers like The Liberator in Boston, and anti-slavery pamphlets were being written and sent all over the South. In the 1840s, Frederick Douglass, who you may be familiar with, who was a formerly enslaved person who was one of the great abolitionist leaders, he toured all around the United States and spoke in lecture halls about his life and experiences, and he even spent time speaking out against slavery abroad in Britain and Ireland. Support for the abolitionist movement really kind of came to the forefront in many American homes after the publication of Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. There's also a lot of connections between, at this time, the abolitionist movement and the suffragist movements. They were sort of emerging out of similar groups and similar circles at the time. Yeah, definitely. The women's movement definitely had early roots in the anti-slavery movement. Early on, uh, suffragist leaders like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, they would sort of split from the abolitionists, I think initially over the 15th Amendment enfranchising black men and not white women. <laughs> so there are a lot of sort of um, racial politics happening with the suffragists. Uh, the first wave that's, of... That's putting it lightly. Yeah, That's putting it extremely, extremely lightly. <laughs> the first wave of the feminist movement began in the mid-19th century and lasted until the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. So white middle-class first-wave feminists in the 19th century to early 20th century, they were primarily focused on women's suffrage, striking down coverture laws, which were basically a legal doctrine whereby upon marriage, a woman's legal rights and obligations were subsumed by those of her husband. So the idea was that the husband and the wife are essentially, legally speaking, the same person. Uh, so it's this like legal erasure <laughs> of an individual, of a woman's individuality. And they were also interested in gaining access to education and employment for women. And all of these sort of goals and objectives were famously included in the Seneca Falls Declaration of Sentiments, which is um, what came out of the first Women's Rights Convention in the U.S. in 1848. And so although it was certainly a repressive time for women, it was also a time for for incredible growth for women's movements. Women had played a huge role in, in the Civil War and organizing on their own behalf. Women mill workers joined unions and participated in some of the earliest labor strikes. So there really is this strong, strong connection between the feminism and abolition. 
But I also wanted to bring in this idea of the cult of true womanhood because it keeps coming up. And I think it's important, too, in the context of Edmonia's work and and sort of like how she's using the sort of social realities of her world to kind of make her art land for people. And so so the idea of the, the cult of true womanhood is the idea that women are suited really only to the private sphere and they're not fit for public life, political participation or, God forbid, labor in the waged economy. So what is inherent in this notion of the cult of true womanhood is the sort of white middle class interests of the leaders of the movement. Because the cult of true womanhood is really a cult of true white womanhood. (laughs) You know, know it's going to be a great movement when it starts with the word cult, you know, it's just going to be super inclusive, super positive, not at all suspect sexually or racially. Yeah. 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 Yeah, totally. It has bad vibes from the get go. (laughs) Yeah. Because there's a systematic oppression of black and working class women that have no choice but to labor outside of the home. They don't have the choice to stay in the private sphere. They don't have the same sort of level of protection in society and that sort of thing. And, and, and clearly, like, even in the sort of this ideology, it's like they're not even in it. Right. It's so clear, like, who's really, like, centering themselves. Right. Yeah. Um, so the the last thing that we wanted to talk about a little bit just before we get into uh, learning more about ammonia is what was going on in the art world. At this point, there was a huge interest in neoclassicism, which like what we saw in the Renaissance when Amanda was here last is kind of an obsession with the classics of ancient Greece and Rome and reviving them and drawing inspiration from those aesthetics and culture. It coincided with the 18th century Age of Enlightenment and continued into the early 19th century and then was kind of eclipsed by things like avant-garde art and uh, a whole bunch of different factors that kind of moved along with you know, moving into the the 20th century. Neoclassicism specifically is really defined by its use of like straight lines, not a lot of color, really dialing down on simplicity of form and making sure that you are sticking to techniques and values that would have been utilized and valued in classical times. Usually it has to do with Greco-Roman history or other historical figures. So a lot of times these women that we were talking about usually were kind of referred to as like literary sculptors who were really dealing in creating stories through their art. And the style of the neoclassical sculpture was a reaction against uh, the previous Rococo period, which was, (laughs) oh boy, uh, very gilded, a lot of cherubs, very, very... Rococo is just <laughs> it's disgusting. It's, it's the gaudiest thing it's gaudy that you could for imagine. Like, like take... Rococo. Like, take the disgusting, gilded nature of, like, Trump Tower, but make it, <laughs> yeah. like, full oh, of God. naked... It really actually is full like of that, Full like... of naked babies and no straight lines. <laughs> it really actually kind of is Trump's aesthetic a little bit, but probably more yeah. pink. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, but it's it's basically yeah. it was like, oh, let's move away from this like frivolity. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was it was moving into serious subjects with serious art, mm-hmm. yeah. which is always defined as classical Greece and Rome, of course, right? Which has you know so many <laughs> different like... elements of classicism in it. Yeah, um, woo. <laughs> Yeah, and in, in terms of architecture, the style of neoclassic architecture continued throughout the 19th, 20th, and up to the 21st century. And an example of that is Washington, D.C. Literally all of it, like, point at a building. Just point all at of a building. It. It's neoclassical architecture. So many obelisks. It's so true. So very many obelisks. Lots of, <laughs> phallic <laughs> yeah if you ever wondered phallic why the lincoln monuments. monument looks like it's the parthenon here you go yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly lots of columns you know yeah are we just We're going back inspired. to we're just we're just going back to uh michelangelo with with washington dc with columns and obelisks just columns <laughs> columns everywhere phalluses yeah. <laughs> yeah. all over the place yeah literally <laughs> Exactly. Oh, my God. Uh, So that's what we have for you in terms of kind of giving you a little bit of background. And so let's dive in to our bio time. Who was Edmonia Lewis? Or as we mentioned, her full name is as she was known throughout different ages in her life, Mary Edmonia Wildfire Lewis. So she was born in either... 1843 or 1844 accounts are kind of muddied and in most accounts she listed her birthday as on or around july 4th which was a very common thing for most americans who didn't know their birthday and for a lot of formerly enslaved folks or descendants of formerly enslaved folks this was the case and she was born in upstate rensselaer county new york she was born with an african haitian father and a mother who was both african-american and ojibwe or anishinaabe or you might have heard the tribe referred to as Chippewa, specifically Mississauga, a subtribe of the Ojibwe people. So she spent her early life in New York and Unfortunately, she and her brother were orphaned at the age of nine. And at that point, they were adopted by their maternal aunts and they lived with them in the Mississauga tribe for several years as she would go on to tell newspapers that she spent those years hunting, fishing, and making and selling baskets, moccasins, and other souvenirs to the Niagara Falls tourists. Some of these facts about her early life may have been kind of exaggerated or embellished for the press with this kind of public persona that sort of traded on the exoticism of her various identities, but this is this is what we have from her. During this time, she went by her Native American name, which was Wildfire, and her brother Samuel was Sunshine. And by 1856, she enrolled in a pre-college program at a Baptist abolitionist school called McGrawville in New York, but she left after about three years. In an interview later in life, she described her life with her aunts and this early time in school, saying, Until I was 12 years old, I led this wandering life, fishing and swimming and making moccasins. I was then sent to school for for three years in McGrawville, but was declared to be too wild. They could do nothing with me. So, you know. I mean, her name you, is you're, Wildfire, you're, so. Yeah, you're, you're getting this kind of sense of like what, you know, yeah. the public persona was built up around her. However, <laughs> academic records from 
the college actually show that her grades, conduct, and attendance were all really good, really mm-hmm. like exemplary. <laughs> and she studied Latin, French, grammar, arithmetic, drawing, composition, and public speaking while she was there. So already mm-hmm. very accomplished, very educated. And as you'll see here, you know, she was able to get some kind of windfall to allow her to move forward in her career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was really lucky to have the support of her brother, who in 1859 moved to California, and he actually got really lucky with gold mining and yeah. made a bunch of money. And he was able to finance her travel to Ohio to attend Oberlin College. And at that point, she changed her name to Mary Edmonia Lewis and began studying art at Oberlin. And she boarded with the abolitionist Reverend John Keep. She was only one of 30 students of color at the school. And she received drawing instruction from an experienced artist, Georgiana Wyatt. This is where she also saw her first plaster casts of classical sculptures and sort of started her artistic career. Oberlin was the first co-ed and interracial college, and it was a major abolitionist center at the time as well. And despite that, she still experienced relentless discrimination and just terrible treatment. I mean, by all accounts, she was an excellent student, but man, did she have a rough time. Yeah. She was falsely accused of poisoning her roommates, and when she was not immediately arrested upon being accused, the townspeople took it upon themselves to actually kidnap Admonia. They beat her, and they left her for dead, essentially, and never faced any legal ramifications for it at all. Um On January 27th, 1862, she had served her friends mulled wine, which she had obtained somehow in this dry town. (laughs) We don't know how. And also while living in the home of a church deacon. So, like, honestly, that's a flex I can get behind. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Um, Before her classmates set out on this sleigh ride, which... Like, that's just a thing they did, I guess, just going on sleigh rides with your friends. That sounds really fun to me. Um, They set out on a sleigh ride with two gentlemen callers. And I'll read this quote. Um, On the disastrous ride out of Oberlin, the two girls became violently, uncontrollably nauseated. The blame was placed on Lewis. Before her trial, she was dragged to a field and beaten by a white mob. In court, she presented herself in crutches, her collarbone shattered. She was represented at trial by John Mercer Langston, who will go on to become the first African-American elected to public office in the United States and a founding dean of Harvard or Howard Law School. <laughs> Not Harvard. Fuck Harvard. Um, Langston pointed out that the stomach contents of the girls had never been tested and Lewis was acquitted. Mm-hmm. So she faced hearings for the alleged uh, poisoning, and although she was acquitted, she was subsequently expelled the following year because she was accused of stealing art supplies. <laughs> so she was a semester away from graduating, and she was unable to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically that that scandal just kind of followed her, yeah. even though she was acquitted, and they were like, we don't have enough evidence to to even go to trial mm-hmm. with this with this person. More reasons to kick her out were basically manifested and yeah. manufactured. It's so transparent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so obvious. So 
after being barred from graduating from Oberlin, she she still wanted to continue her education. So she picked herself up and moved to Boston. And she went there with letters of introduction from several people, including the uh, Reverend Keep. And she was able to secure her training under a self-taught sculptor named Edward Brackett. He was an abolitionist who specialized in marble busts, and he catered to a lot of abolitionist clients. The beginnings of her foray into sculpture in Boston have been somewhat mythologized, and a lot of times the press would kind of portray her as like a childlike savant who was brand new to the world of art and had never ever seen a statue before, because <laughs> that's not the most patronizing thing in the entire world. Um, a story from contemporary sources at the time goes that she like saw a statue of Benjamin Franklin and was so enraptured by the idea of a life-size statue, which she'd never seen before, that she apparently said, I too can make a stone man. Um, and so like, we'll go into this a little bit later and kind of the other ways the press depicted Lewis in a very racialized manner. But I also just kind of yeah. like the idea of her saying something like, you know, I too can make a stone man just being like, inse- instead of the way that they were intending it as like, right. oh, perhaps I too can do this mm-hmm. as like, I-, I can, I can make yes. that. <laughs> Whatever, I can make that. I could do that. I honestly, I feel like that was like her vibe. Like I feel like that's that was kind of her personality. She was like, I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so in Boston, she opened up her own studio and she was working and selling primarily sculpted portraits of abolitionists. She had her first solo exhibition in 1864. Some of those significant subjects and pieces in that show were a medallion of abolitionist John Brown, who led a coalition to raid the arsenal at Harper's Ferry in 1859. Um, she also was commissioned by Dr. Harriet K. Hunt, Boston's first woman physician, to create a statue of Hygieia, the Greek goddess of health, also sculpted a bust of Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, leader of the all-black 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry Regiment during the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she uh, listed him as, as her hero in multiple interviews as well. Yeah. She sold 100 plaster copies of the bust during a soldier's relief fair in Boston. So it was popular. Like, she knew what would sell. Like, she had a sense of she was very business oriented. And those funds from from selling those 100 plaster copies helped her ultimately to be able to move to Italy. So, yeah, she was just hustling. I'm like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> getting it done yeah i mean you know the beginnings of her career she's she's, all, she's, busts. she's got a studio she's gonna yeah. sell a whole bunch of busts and um before we leave boston though we thought that this would be a really good opportunity to bring up our word of the week boston marriages <laughs> similar to romantic friendship, which we've talked about on this show a lot. This was specifically for two women. So whereas we had romantic friendship, which was kind of, you know, all all genders across, this was specifically referring to two women used in New England in the late 19th, early 20th century. Boston marriages typically referred to cohabitation, so women living together, of two wealthy or well-off unmarried women, usually white, because they were the women who had the means 
things to be able to live independently without financial support from men. Their relationships were sometimes sexual, but not necessarily always. So a Boston marriage could refer to a traditionally lesbian relationship or an artistic collaboration or a business partnership or, you know, just really intimate friends, roommates. Um, it all kind of, you know, encompasses that whole world. What was new for me in doing the research is that the term came primarily from Henry James's book, The Bostonians, which is an 1886 novel which featured two unmarried, quote, new women. He didn't use this term, but this was a term that was was being used at the time. It was kind of like an umbrella term for women who were reinventing gender norms and structures in the 1880s. Basically like, ah, those rascally feminists. Yeah, there's a new woman. There's a new She's woman. fundamentally different from <laughs> other women. <laughs> she rides horses in pants. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so his book uh, basically features these two characters who are living together and were inspired by what James had observed of his sister Alice and her positive relationship with another woman named Catherine Loring. He characterized the Bostonians as a, quote, very American tale and one of those friendships between women which are so common in New England. So a lot of ladies living together with other ladies in New England. <laughs> yes, definitely. Mark DeWolf Howell, who met several women in these types of arrangements, described it as, quote, a union, there is no truer word for it, end quote. Um, usually feminists with shared values involved together often in social causes um, or, you know, shared sort of collective work. And a lot of women who are self-sufficient in their own careers, Boston marriages were so common at Wellesley College that the term Wellesley marriage even emerged um, yeah. <laughs> because it was so common. At the time, women were really expected to abandon their academic careers when they got married. So this was kind of a loophole. <laughs> like, so I'll just shack up with my lady professor friend <laughs> and then we can both do our work and live our damn lives. <laughs> and uh, there's a famous pair, Catherine Lee Bates and Catherine Ellis Common, which... Ain't that like a queer lady thing to be dating someone with the same name just, as just you? Just Katie and Katie. It happens. <laughs> and See, it's I keep weird, I keep sitting here happens. going like, is Catherine Lee Bates at all related to Kathy Bates? <laughs> and then I look at the pictures of both of them, and I'm like, oh, there might actually be something there. <laughs> oh, they really? kind of like kind of look alike. I haven't oh done gosh. enough research into it, but like, hmm, you <laughs> like an ancestor, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they, they lived together in a Wellesley marriage for 25 years. Yeah, uh, that's that's a long time. It's a long time. That's a long time. I just uh, I also really love that, like, there was so much of this going on at this one all women's college that they <laughs> yeah. created. I mean, that just reminds me of, like, literally, I learned that the term power lesbian was coined at the UC Santa Cruz campus. No. Yes. I didn't know that. I learned that. I was like, oh, no wonder I don't want to date any of the dykes here. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Everything is so clicky. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, so <laughs> well, yeah. So so this tradition, maybe, of, of Boston marriages 
uh, fell out of favor in the 1920s, partially due to the increasing suspicion of the potentially sexual nature of these relationships. And so fewer single women chose to live together openly. So basically, yeah. people started to catch on that like, oh, they're not just gal pals palling around. Right. They're yeah. Well, and you had um, <laughs> the term lesbian had come into vogue and mm -hmm. the creation of this kind of like sexualized identity. And there were fears around lesbianism stealing all the women uh, while the men were off in World War One, and, you know, a whole bunch right. of a lot of a lot of fears at that time. So a lot of uh, single women kind of. Who would, you know, perhaps have been in these type of arrangements, whether or not they were romantic or sexual, mm -hmm. kind of stepped away from that. Yeah. And so that is that is the end of our word of the week. I hope that you learned some fun stuff. So let's move back to Edmonia Lewis and her life and her big move to Italy. to move, Lewis decided eventually to leave the United States and she was inspired by other abolitionist and feminist artists who had left the country and moved to Italy. There was a woman named Charlotte Cushman who was a successful American artist and feminist. She was actually one of the most successful U.S. actresses at this time and many others that were aware that a lot of male sculptors were already traveling to Rome. There was a huge supply of marble and there were a lot of studios and a lot of tutors that just weren't available in the U.S., and so these sculptors kind of inspired and encouraged uh, many women artists to do the same. And a woman named Harriet Goodhue Hosmer, who we will talk about later, was actually the first person to recommend that Lewis study sculpture in Italy. So 1865, the summer comes by and she boards a ship to Rome, joining the growing number of American women sculptors who were like, all right, peace out. I'm going to go sculpt in a place that will actually allow me to do it. So okay. you had this kind of first school of women sculptors, which included Harriet Hosmer, Emma Stebbins, Edmonia Lewis, Margaret Foley, who was uh, who primarily worked in cameos, and this Charlotte Cushman. We will talk about them, and especially Charlotte Cushman later. And they and they all uh, established studios there and worked in the neoclassical style of the period. Right, and Hosmer actually arranged for Lewis to rent a studio that once belonged to a prominent Venetian sculptor, Antonio Canova. While in Rome, Lewis fully embraced the neoclassical style, sculpting in marble, and she did all of the marble work herself without the help of any hired tradesmen to do the chiseling, which was generally the thing that people did at the time. It was common practice. But male sculptors were often very skeptical of women sculptors and jealous of their talent and sort of uh, wanted to sabotage them, accuse them of not doing their own work, um, just generally give them a hard fucking time. Mm -hmm. And Lewis just refused to let that really have an influence on her career. So she opted to work entirely solo mm -hmm. as a way around that. So she did all of her work 
herself on her own (laughs) and it was very unusual um and very difficult to work that way yeah she would like start her sculptures in like clay or wax and then enlarge them into the Mm -hmm. marble which was this you know the stage at which most sculptors like even as we saw michelangelo would be like (laughs) all right you person who is a class below me that will give you money please do the hard work of chiseling this um which you know just gives shitty men an opportunity to be like ah but you didn't really do that work Mm -hmm. um um, her works generally featured newly freed African Americans, and she also sculpted many Native Americans, which is a subject many uh, have attributed to her personal heritage. But at the time, it may have actually been, at least in part, because of a desire, especially in Europe, to cater to American tastes in art at the time. So, like, like a kind of fascination with American culture and kind of this, the like wild, unfettered West or whatever bullshit Mm -hmm. you know people were (laughs) fetishizing at the time yeah thayer tolls who's the curator of american paintings and sculpture at the met explains that quote representations of native americans were very prevalent at the time both for artists working at home and artists working abroad in florence and rome because they announced themselves as specifically american themes so like the stereotypes of early american colonization you know quote-unquote settlement and expansion were the things that people were super fast fascinated with seeing, especially from across the pond. Absolutely. Yes. And Lewis spent her life traveling across the Atlantic and she would highlight different aspects of her identity depending on her her audience. She deeply understood white culture, what people were expecting from her um, and how they were reading her. And since her audience was largely white, she had her work sort of frequently misread as self-portraiture. And so that was something that she was very aware of and she was very careful with her stylistic choices, often choosing to whitewash the female figures in her art and give them typically European features. And so that decision to do that is pretty, is is a complicated one. So the sort of way that she sought to create distance between herself as the artist and the subject matter of the work was to like neutralize the blackness, to remove it even from the work, because she knew that her audience was going to equate her with the work and see it as um, self-portraiture in some way. And she wanted to preserve her, you know, she wanted to manage how she was perceived as an artist and an individual. She wanted to have the credibility and, and power as an artist to define herself and her own work. And, you know, it was a sort of complicated landscape that she was working in and and she was very much reliant on white abolitionists of the time for support and funding and and everything so she was really balancing quite a lot her own personal identity with her artistic and social situations national identity uh, all of those things affected her art and the themes that she chose and the ways that she chose to portray those themes Kristen Pye Buick, a professor of art history at the University of New Mexico, wrote Child of the Fire, Mary Edmonia Lewis and the Problem of Art History's Black and Indian Subject. And she noted um, in that that, quote, during abolitionism, she found reciprocal interests and common ground with anti-slavery advocates. And, quote, after slavery was abolished, Lewis sculpted religious subjects that appealed to Catholic patrons in Italy and England. And I feel like that speaks more to her sort of a 
ability to like fully understand all the machinations of what's happening around her with people and society and sort of figuring out how can I make this work for me and so that I can make the art I want to make and live my life the way that I want to live it. So she was really just kind of absolutely just like very smart, (laughs) like just very um, just like knew what she was doing. Um, And I'm just like so impressed by by that part of of her story. And I mean, I can imagine how exhausting and difficult it would be to have to to have to essentially like censure and at the same time play up that part of your identity right in order to kind of eliminate stereotypes that would be thrown at her and thrown at her work she had to remove that part of her from her work while at the same time like Mm -hmm. representing elements of african-american history and culture there's it was it buick who who had the quote that she she refused to be victimized by her own yes. hand yes yeah so i, yeah, think I that's, love that that's a really i think that's a really important way i to feel look like at that it. really cuts to the heart of of what that choice was about right for her. um one of her her most famous pieces that she did in 1867 was a piece called forever free which the title comes from the text of the emancipation proclamation from 1863 and it's a marble sculpture it's a smaller marble marble sculpture and in it she depicts a newly freed african-american couple a man standing staring up and raising his arm into the air his wrist carrying a broken chain and the woman is kneeling to his right with her hands held in a, a prayer position Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's 1855 epic poem, The Song of Hiawatha, was enormously popular at this time. And so it's a story about two star-crossed lovers from different Native American tribes. The popularity of that narrative helped Edmonia Lewis attract patrons. And that was a calculated choice on her part. Like, she knew what subject matter would have relevance. And then this, in particular, had personal relevance for her as well. And and in a way that she knew would be compelling for patrons and people who would be interested in the work. And the fact that she and the titular Hiawatha were members of the same tribe absolutely didn't hurt that narrative for her. Um, It was a very strong brand um, that she uh, definitely used to push her career forward. Um, And so, you know, the the Song of Hiawatha was so popular at the time that she even sculpted a version of the fictional couple from the story in 1868, which is actually currently you can see on display at the Met when we're allowed to leave our homes now (laughs) in the future at some point. Go get vaccinated when it's your turn. Uh, Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) So another one of her most well-known pieces is a gigantic piece of marble called The Death of Cleopatra, which she created and displayed in 1873 at the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition. It received rave reviews, but it was also really controversial. Much of the viewing public was really shocked by her blunt portrayal of death in the sculpture, which just basically added to her fame and notoriety. Uh, Literally thousands of people came from all over to view the work. This death of Cleopatra was a very, very popular subject, much like Hiawatha at the time, much like all of these abolitionists. So she was really kind of on the cusp of what was being done in the culture at the time. But she specifically chose to depict Cleopatra in the really excruciatingly pained moments directly after 
after she allows herself to be bitten by the asp, so taking it from from Shakespeare. And so there's this uh, quote saying that Lewis added an innovative flair by portraying the Egyptian queen in a disheveled, inelegant manner, a departure from the refined, composed Victorian approach of representing death. It's also really notable that usually in these depictions of Cleopatra, she was flanked by her accompanying slaves, and Edmonia specifically chose to eliminate representation of those figures in the work. Yeah, I think we have maybe a, a little bit more on it later on. Yeah, things. yeah, there's but some yeah. interesting stuff. It's an interesting work. Yeah, so her artwork gained a lot of attention in part because of the popularity of the themes that she chose among art collectors in Europe, and she managed to exhibit her sculpture alongside other well-established artists of the period, both in Europe and in the U.S. Biographer Rena Evelyn Wolf refers to Lewis as having, quote, a knack for business, bartering tenaciously for the finest marble, and winning commissions creatively. Her work sold for large sums of money during her lifetime. In 1873, there was an article in the New Orleans Picayne. Old time, old timey news things. <laughs> yes, old timey, old timey newspaper. Quote: Edmonia Lewis had snared two fifty thousand dollar commissions. I looked this up. Fifty thousand dollars in eighteen seventy three would be like a million dollars today. <laughs> yeah, like over a million. <laughs> like it would, it would be over a million dollars. So that's incredible. She got two of those. Her studio became like a tourist destination. She had several major exhibitions, including one in Chicago in 1870 and another in Rome in 1871. Uh, her studio in Rome saw several visitors, including Frederick Douglass and Ulysses S. Grant, even uh, received the blessing of Pope Pius IX, according to an 1878 article in the Globe newspaper. Mm -hmm. So she she gained a lot of attention for her work and it was well publicized. You know, there were she got a lot of attention. So, yeah, that's always good for an artist. <laughs> there were a lot of articles that were just like Edmonia Lewis arrives in Rome. Edmonia Lewis mm -hmm. returns to Rome. Edmonia Lewis got this commission. Um, so she was just very much essentially the talk of the town. Yeah, totally. However, with that, you know, that kind of comes as a double edged sword because mm -hmm. The exceptional quality of her art certainly had a large part in the notoriety and fame, but her racial background also had a part in it. Her background was both praised and derided in the press, and this was something that she expressed a lot of mixed feelings about. In 1878, she told the New York Times, and these are some of the only like actual quotes that we have direct from her and not like, right. you know, abolitionist yeah. leaders being like, oh, look at this, look at this mm -hmm. magical woman who... <laughs> who, you know, exceeded the expectations of, her, of both of her races, et cetera, et cetera, bullshit, bullshit. They're weird editorializing. They're very, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so she says, I was practically driven to Rome in order to obtain the opportunities for art culture and to find a social atmosphere where I was not constantly reminded of my color. The land of liberty had no room for a colored sculptor. So the press around her kind of continued to exoticize and heavily racialize her while at the same time applauding her work. So there was like this one 1866 interview and review of her work, which noted how she, quote, prattles like a child with, quote, crisp hair and thick lips. Gross. Or describing mm -hmm. her as curious and exceptional example of native artistic ability. There was a lot of stereotyping of like the noble savage, quote unquote. Yes, myth. Absolutely. Uh, 
Nearly all mentions of Edmonia in the press kind of preface their stories with reference to her as, you know, with some sort of flavor of Edmonia Lewis, the colored sculptress, or traded in stereotypes about Native Americans and saying things like she transcended the sadness of both her races and uh, ridiculous things like that. And so you can see that that was a huge element in the way that she was portrayed. And, you know, as we, we learned, she was highly educated. She was highly trained in her artwork and came from a relatively well off background, but she in some ways allowed the contemporary press to portray her as this like naive savant um, mm -hmm. in part as a way to she knew that she had to kind of trade these elements of her identity in order for her to have, you know, success in these white abolitionist circles but it also served as a way to erase things like the scandal that she had encountered back in Oberlin with the poisoning incident of her roommates. Historian Marilyn Richardson, who she's like the primary scholar on Edmonia Lewis, had a really wonderful quote saying, She worked both sides of the street, depending on her audience and her patrons. She emphasized her blackness or her Native American origins. She was very savvy about how to keep her identity in play. Yeah, I think that's the like defining thing that allowed her to be as successful as she was. <laughs> yeah. Because she was so good at that. And a lot of her work has been destroyed or ignored until very recently, which is super unfortunate. And in 1967, James Porter tried to convince the Howard University Art Gallery of the importance of her sculptural commemoration of the Emancipation Proclamation, Forever Free, that we, we talked about a little earlier. Porter ended up actually acquiring the work with his own money and then donated it to the museum. <laughs> it was like, okay, you guys uh, won't buy it? Okay, I'll buy it and then I'll give it to you. Gotta love museums uh, that would just rather steal all goodness. of their material than, you know, pay money to actually showcase the work of marginalized peoples. But, you know, yeah. who am I? Yes. Just a person who works in museums and is really frustrated with the way that the majority of them worked have worked for uh, hundreds of years. But, you uh, know. Yeah, they're colonialist institution. That is what they are. That is, I feel, not a controversial thing to say, but some might disagree. <laughs> yeah, so, fuck, fuck, so, fuck, so we talked earlier about Patra. That work is, I don't remember if we said or not, but it is a monumental sculpture. It is 3,015 pounds of marble. <laughs> like, it's giant. That's so much. After that work went into storage at some point and it was kind of lost until a century later in the mid-1980s in Chicago, when Marilyn Richardson, Lewis's biographer that we mentioned, discovered it covered in white and purple house paint and left in a mall outside of Chicago. So how it's just like abandoned. How does like, this happen? How? How did it get to a mall? Yes. So this was a two ton artwork that just somehow managed to get lost. And it's just insane to me. I, I don't know how that happens to an artwork in like a collection like or at all. I mean, just in general, how does that get How does something moved? that big and that heavy get lost? <laughs> like, and moved. Like you really need to try hard to yeah. get it wherever it's going to end up. Yeah. So Marilyn found it. Um, and when she first saw it, it was clumsily painted. And she said, quote, jammed in between Christmas trees. Jesus. End quote. <laughs> it now resides 
in the Smithsonian American Art Museum, which I actually interned at when I was in grad school. And it's very sad to me that I've never seen this work. Uh, it's not been on view that I'm aware of in the recent past. Oh, man. Um, but, dude, I'm going to keep an eye out for it. And see, so and so see. it's at the Smithsonian, but it's not on display. Right. Yeah, it's in the collection, but I don't think that I've ever seen it on view. But. Oh, man. Put it in the display. Yep. I was about to say, put it in the museum, but it's, it's in a museum. <laughs> it's um. in there. <laughs> So in terms of Edmonia's later life, we really don't know much. Basically, after enjoying around like 10 years of fame and notoriety for her artwork in Europe, she basically just kind of vanished into obscurity. Probably had to do with multiple factors, like neoclassical style had kind of fallen out of favor. It was replaced by an interest in like avant-garde and Auguste Rodin. And there was a move towards bronze as like the superior sculpting material. And significantly, the kind of center of art and art culture shifted from Rome to Paris and would remain there for significant portion of late 19th, early 20th century. To this day, the website of the Smithsonian states that, quote, after 1875, facts concerning the remainder of Lewis's life, as well as the date and place of death, are obscure and conflicting. So she just kind of was in all of these newspapers and then nothing. she was just gone. Yeah, she was just gone. She, at some point, left Rome and, you know, that's all she wrote. Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't actually until a few years ago that we found out more about her final resting place. Richardson spent many years uh, looking for Lewis's grave and was only recently able to make some progress on that work when historical documents actually started getting digitized and uploaded to the internet, which like, when I read that, I was like, woohoo, because that's like, digitization <laughs> is important, yes. creates I'm accessibility. Like, yes, oh my God, what? <laughs> what things are just languishing on paper in a flat file somewhere and in, in, in some archive? Yeah. yeah. Like, and this is the kind of stuff that, that we can uncover. So if you um, have any sort of disposable income, here's <laughs> our plea. Donate to your local archives for digitization mm -hmm. projects, because these are usually things that need specific funding in yes. order to put certain materials online. Right, right. So through this, there were some census records from 1901 that revealed that Edmonia relocated from Rome to London, and Richardson's research also uncovered Lewis's will and burial records. Um, so we're now able to know that Lewis officially died in Hammersmith Infirmary in London of Bright's disease, which is a chronic kidney disease, most likely in 1907, and was buried in St. Mary's Roman Catholic Cemetery in London. Her will noted that she asked to be buried in a dark walnut coffin, that notice of her death be printed in British Roman Catholic publication, The Tablet, and identified herself in the document as a spinster and a sculptor, which is great. Until recently, Lewis's grave was unmarked, until 2017, when a GoFundMe by East Greenbush, New York historian Bobby Reno succeeded in restoring the site. Mm -hmm. So so really recent. Yeah, yeah. very recent. And, yeah. you know, continuing the really upsetting trend of like really accomplished, remarkable black women being buried in a site with no fucking grave marker. Yep. That's uh, that's a pattern that I do not like to continue discovering upon in this podcast. But, no, you know, it's a bummer. 
Big bummer. Huge. So now it is time as we close out the story of Edmonia Lewis's life with her declaration of herself as a spinster and a sculptor. We all know the implications of spinster as we talked about in Lizzie Borden episode a couple years ago. But it is time now for us to dive into our why do we think they're gay segment. There's a couple of different areas that we wanted to go in. And much like we discovered with Lizzie Borden and in some ways Dolly Wilde, there's not a huge amount of information directly about Edmonia's love life or lack thereof. Um, So we'd be kind of We'll be kind of going into the circles that she ran in and, you know, making some conjectures around that. There's a wonderful quote here that we have. While many have speculated about her sexuality, given her close associations with women and her androgynous style of dress, Lewis was a transformational figure who used her art to capture the historical legacies of women, African-Americans, and other figures central to Black culture and the American Civil War. So the f- the first thing that we wanted to mention, and this could be like nothing, but I just wanted to pop it in there, is one of the only kind of surviving drawings on paper by Edmonia Lewis when she was in uh, at Oberlin is a piece from 1862 titled The Muse Urania. And if you remember, Urania, as the this Greek god, has some explicitly queer connotations. This was like a fully finished piece. It's signed, and she made it for her Oberlin classmate, Clara Steele Norton, as a wedding gift, which is really delightful. And apparently she like did it totally last minute by like candlelight. So there's like wax drippings on it. And it's like very kind of romantic, you know, even if it was like a wedding gift. Yeah, like platonically romantic. So I just, I thought it was interesting to note that like the figure and story of Urania, who was the Greek muse of astronomy, she was created from the testicles of Uranus. And and only about two years later, in 1864, 1865, was being used to refer to homosexual men, which, as you might remember, started by Karl Heinrich Ulrichs and began to be quickly adopted by Victorian society among advocates of queer emancipation. So it, you know, it could just be nothing. It could be, hey, I'm a neoclassical artist and here's this Greek god. But I couldn't help but note, like, hmm, hot, Urania. And then very soon after, you know, and and which means, and that's only really like the the time that it was published. So it's very possible that this was already sort of in the vernacular. And I don't know how much, you know, interaction Edmonia would have had with white aristocratic gay male culture, but I thought it was worth noting. Yeah, totally. And by all accounts, she was very intentional about her subject matter and like her decision making around that. And so what she would choose to make for a gift for an individual person, I would think that she would put as much thought into that (laughs) as well. Right. So, yeah. So we mentioned earlier the poisoning incident that happened at Oberlin College. But what we haven't said quite yet is that it may well have been More likely an attempt to administer an aphrodisiac to her college classmates that sort of went sideways. (laughs) Yeah. As we mentioned, the charges were dismissed against her during a preliminary hearing because there was insufficient evidence to hold her for trial, especially considering the nature of the drug that was involved in the incident. Uh... Quote, most people believed that if Edmonia had in fact served the drug to the young women, her intent was more likely to promote sexual stimulation than to poison. So the drug itself was cantharides, commonly known as Spanish fly. It has compounds derived from blister beetles, which have been used as aphrodisiacs 
for centuries. Sexy. They are highly toxic, but in very small quantities, they induce itching and burning in the genitals, which perhaps wishfully have been mistaken for arousal. Nothing uh, gets me more hot and bothered than <laughs> blister beetles. <laughs> Itching and burning genitals is is um I mean they is, use yeah. they use that oh god they use that shit for like removal of warts. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's that's it's not, not a pleasant <laughs> feeling. I I would not want that anywhere near yeah. my nether regions. Thank you. you know and they, certainly wouldn't mistake it for arousal, but you know, I guess <laughs> prior to Viagra. <laughs> yeah. I don't you know what even... they say. It's not the poison, it's the dose. Um, so you just need like a little drop of Spanish fly. Um, yeah, so the, the two women who were served the wine seemed to be close friends of Edmonia's, and the three of them had been involved in several pranks on each other. So it kind of seems like maybe they were just kind of a cheeky bunch, and they were like pranking each other and being cute. Um, and then it turned into like, oh, crap, we're on a sleigh ride and everyone's vomiting. <laughs> like, I guess that's what oh, it sounds God. like happened. Yeah. Um, another theory is that the two women were targeted because of romantic jealousy on Edmonia's part since they were on dates with their male companions during the sleigh ride when the drug took effect. So maybe she was trying to sabotage their date or something. <laughs> but Things we'll never know. Yeah, yeah, we shall never know. The, the the larger context of what we wanted to talk about is primarily this like group of women that she was involved with in Rome. She uh, Edmonia Lewis, along with these other women, never married or had children and was very, very close with all of these women who lived together and were in relationships with one another and seemed to have been highly influential on Lewis's life. So, you know, we're going as far to say, like, if, you, if you're surrounded by this many women who are doing these things and living this type of life, I mean... I I don't I mean, really believe <laughs> I don't really believe in the myth of the token straight. Um, <laughs> so this group of women consisted of Charlotte Cushman, who was an actress, and then a whole bunch of different sculptors, including, as we mentioned, Harriet Hoseman, Ebba Stebin- Emma Stebbins, Margaret Foley, Louisa Lander, and others. So it's really important for us. We wanted to, you know, even though we don't have specific information about Edmonia's love life. We thought it would, the best way to, you know, show the way that Ammonia may have been living her life, at least in connection with these women, would be to dive into these women that made up this so-called Great White Marmorian flock, as they were called, inferring how she would have lived her life. Essentially gay by association. Yeah. So Rena Evelyn Wolfe, who was another biographer, noted that Edmonia never married or had children. She often dressed like a man, and most of her friends and female mentors were openly and, in fact, famously lesbian. And so because of this, you know, we're not the only people to make this conjecture. Many historians have concluded that Lewis was also lesbian, but it's something that we'll never know for sure. But there are several sources out there that just be like, Edmonia Lewis and Charlotte Cushman, both of whom were lesbians. And it's like, okay, where's, you know... (laughs) where's uh where's where's the deets i know but you know we couldn't find specific deets on her but oh boy are there some fun deets on these other ladies yes unfortunately there's just so little like direct information about ammonia's life right um so the name of the group the white marmorian flock 
comes from Henry James. It was actually said in a sort of dismissive way, <laughs> sort of dismissive of this cadre of women as, quote, that strange sisterhood of American lady sculptors who at one time settled upon the seven hills in a white marmorian flock, end quote. And marmorian is, uh, means made of or likened to marble. James especially hated Lewis, describing her as, quote, one of the sisterhood was a negress whose color picturesquely contrasting with that of her plastic material, white marble, <laughs> was the pleading agent of her fame. So, yeah, he he basically was like, ah, she's only famous because people are so fascinated by yes. the novelty of a black woman do this. This is also yeah. like, I'm, you know, surprised that this is coming from the dude who also coined, basically coined the term inadvertently <laughs> Boston marriage, but yeah, whatever, dude. <laughs> Uh, I, what I, what I really love is that this group was also described as a harem scarum of emancipated females who dwell together in a heavenly unit, which I immediately need a t-shirt. I immediately need a (laughs) t-shirt that says harem scarum. Absolutely. This group of women essentially used their roles as sculptures as a method to escape marriage and, quote, formed a close-knit and supportive community who appropriated masculine sartorial dress as a code for female independence. Mm -hmm. So they were really just trying to be free, (laughs) I feel like. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, we're just going to reiterate the very nature of sculpture was deemed a more masculine endeavor. And so the women who decided to do anything but homemaking were considered somewhat abnormal for multiple reasons. You know, people thought that like the laborious work of chiseling would be too difficult for women. And, you know, you might as well just stick to to painting. Mm -hmm. Also, this is something that I had never really think about. But like, in order to sculpt most of the time, you'd have to wear pants because, like, you're not about to get up on a whole bunch of scaffolding and petticoats. Like, if you, you know, thought about how much, like, Michelangelo hated being up on scaffolding on his back doing the fresco of the Sistine Chapel, mm-hmm. can you imagine how much more of a diva he would have been if he was, like, covered in skirts? <laughs> um, and to sculpt, you know, even male figures who were, like, draped in cloth or clothing they would have needed to know the underlying anatomy Mm -hmm. and you know in order to do that you have to either study nude models or like dissect corpses and those those things were were all (laughs) no-nos yeah 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 so yeah they uh an article that we read noted that they were women who fascinated, astonished, and shocked the expatriate community in Italy with their female marriages and their demands for full equality with their male counterparts. So several of these women also engaged in Boston marriages. They were fascinated, astonished, yeah. shocked, shocked. Such scandal. Whoa. Um, so we don't have the opportunity to go into all of these women, but we wanted to highlight a couple of them, starting with essentially the ringleader of this group of women who was extremely queer actress Charlotte Cushman, essentially the Natalie Clifford Barney of the late 1800s in Rome, complete with the same kind of like messy <laughs> L word chart level drama. Yeah, it's 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 really fun, actually. <laughs> Charlotte Cushman was born in Boston in 1816, started acting in 1835. She was prolific. She played 190 roles, uh, both men and women, including her start as Lady Macbeth. And then she sort of hit her stride with breeches roles, such as Hamlet and Romeo. 
So she really flourished in roles and characters, quote, where roused by passion or incited by some earnest and long-cherished determination, the woman, for the time being, assumes all the power of manhood. And her performances as Romeo in Great Britain led her audiences to declare she, quote, seemed just man enough to be a boy, end quote, (laughs) which is an interesting (laughs) sentence. Her love scenes with women were so convincing that one critic wrote they were, quote, of so erotic a character that no man would have dared indulge them, end quote. And other critics said she was, quote, more convincing playing a man on stage than playing a woman in life, end quote, which is just like, (laughs) wow. Yeah. Whoa. (laughs) She, uh... Much, much like Natalie Clifford Barney was known as a polyamorous heartbreaker. Mm-hmm. During her stage career, she received countless like swooning fan letters <laughs> from women and often was carrying on multiple relationships simultaneously. Unfortunately, she did not necessarily engage in ethical polyamory necessarily (laughs) uh, and this led to some confrontations so one of her early relationships at the age of 25 was with uh, a woman named Rosalie Scully who was uh, the painter Thomas Scully's daughter and they began their relationship in Philadelphia they exchanged passionate letters and Rosalie would paint miniature portraits of Charlotte and in an 1844 diary entry uh, and her diary sure as hell reminds me a lot of Anne Lister uh, wrote, she wrote of wanting to kiss Rosalie so passionately she would, quote, kiss the breath out of her body. She also wrote that she slept with Rose, just, quote, slept with Rose on July 5th, 1844, which is why I'm like, hello, Anne Lister. Uh, and then the next day wrote that they were married after uh, basically <laughs> so saying, gay. yeah, yeah. Oh, you slept with her. Now you're married. But it, ac- it, it, actually st- it had actually started after she had given her a ring back in June. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, however, <laughs> this wasn't necessarily the longest lasting relationship. Cushman left to England in November 1844 for a stage tour and didn't invite Rosalie along. And uh, (laughs) when Rosalie caught her in an affair with another woman, she apparently supposedly died of a, quote, broken heart a a few (laughs) months later. Uh, She really died. She really died at the age of 29 of fever. But um, (laughs) it was claimed that she had suffered a broken heart, which led to her death. Uh, She also had a relationship with Matilda Hayes. The relationship lasted a decade and they were extremely public with their relationship, going to events together, wearing similar dresses and holding hands. Elizabeth Barrett Browning described their relationship as a marriage, uh, saying, quote, I understand that Cushman and Miss Hayes have made vows of celibacy and of eternal attachment to each other. They live together, dress alike. It is a female marriage, mm-hmm. end quote. Yeah, so she leaves England for Rome in 1852 and retires from the stage, uh, not for the last time. This is just the first time she decided to retire. And she created there her arts colony, which she uh, <laughs> described as a household of jolly bachelor women. Uh, that which is fucking great. Incredible. <laughs> uh, and so Matilda Hayes, Harriet Hosmer, Emma Stebbins were all involved, Edmonia Lewis. Most of them were all living together fully in the same house and it was at this time where she fell in love with Emma Stebbins in Rome after uh, Matilda Hayes her old flame had become involved with another sculptor we're going to be talking about Harriet Hosmer uh, they got together in 1854 and Matilda Hayes was like alright goodbye and left Cushman but they got back together the next year however 
1857, Cushman was already having an affair with Emma Stebbins. So mm. there was some some drama. Apparently, Matilda Hayes walked in on Cushman writing a note to Emma Stebbins, <laughs> which caused them to get into like a huge fight. Like apparently like like a like a full-on running through the house fist fight. Wow. Um, and Hayes actually said, <laughs> said, you owe me money because I've lost part of my career to your philandering and bullshit. Um, and so she essentially sued Cushman for like the equivalent of like a palimony case nowadays. So apparently wow. Cushman paid her an unknown sum and the couple sundered their relationship permanently. I mean, I guess that's <laughs> do, do you the, ever like, do you ever sue your ex equivalent yeah. of like Do you ever sue your ex for, for emotional damage? <laughs> yeah. Stebbins and Cushman lived together for 12 years before returning to the U.S. after Cushman was diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, Stebbins had stopped working in order to care for Cushman and did so until her death in 1876. And Stebbins spent nearly the rest of her life actually writing Cushman's biography and died on October 25th, 1882 from lung, lung disease. So she was really quite devoted to Cushman and that is so beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, so going a little bit into Harriet Hosmer, who was born in 1830. So she's another sculptor who had big-ass butch energy. There's <laughs> yeah. a article from 1959 that describes her saying, Masculine energy and strength she had already. She developed also a fine self-confidence, a pleasant impudence, and a gay propensity for mischief, which often <laughs> went far enough to provoke gossip and be a real nuisance to the neighbors. Gay propensity for mischief. That's going to be the title of my, that's going to be my memoir. <laughs> yes. um, so despite women not really being generally allowed to study anatomy and take medical classes, she managed to attend an anatomy class. And apparently no medical student ever gave her shit because according to local gossip, she quote, carried a pistol in her belt and was known to be a dead shot. So if you ever, you know, if, if you ever think of going up to Harriet Hosmer to say shit about her being a woman studying anatomy, yeah. she apparently just threatened to shoot you. Hosmer had love affairs all over, but no intention of marrying uh, and wrote to Wayman Crow when she was 24. Even if so inclined, an artist has no business to marry. For a man, it may be well enough, but for a woman on whom matrimonial duties and cares weigh more heavily, it is a moral wrong. I think for she must either neglect the profession or her family, becoming neither a good wife and mother nor a good artist. My ambition is to become the latter." Um, so, wow, that's such a wonderful <laughs> right? quote uh, that cuts really to the heart of that desire of women to, like, have their career and their chosen passions and how just their own lives shit gets in the way. Yeah. And that, like, wow, it is a moral wrong. Um, yeah. Those are strong words. So she may have also had a relationship with Cushman, unclear. Definitely had an affair with Matilda Hayes, Cushman's old flame. Her friend, Sir Frederick Layton, described her as, quote, the queerest, best-natured little chap possible. Little chap. Very nice. Little chap. Little chap. She dressed out of feminine conventions while in her studio, and while she dressed more conventionally outside, she still cut her hair short, quote, so that she might have less trouble with marble dust, end quote. <laughs> she would often wear a beret 
and trousers while working, quote, not intending to break my neck on the scaffolding by remaining in petticoats, end quote. Yeah, I love that she's just like, what, do you expect me to just kill myself because (laughs) you want me to not be wearing pants? Uh, One of my favorite things about this is that apparently Nathaniel Hawthorne was uh, relatively close with a lot of these women and visited them. And he was just like apparently really fascinated and also scandalized by them. Um, And, you know, I I enjoy any time people make Nathaniel Hawthorne uncomfortable. So he describes this time that he met Harriet in like the most butch, beautiful introduction ever. He says, quote, She had on a robe, I think, but I did not look so low, my attention being chiefly drawn to a sort of man's sack of purple or plum-colored broadcloth into the side pockets of which her hands were thrust as she came forward to greet us. She had on a shirt front, collar, and cravat like a man's with a brooch of Etruscan gold, and on her curly head was a picturesque little cap of velvet. Their Never was anything so jaunty as her movement and action. She was very peculiar, but she seemed to be her actual self, and nothing affected or made up. So that, for my part, I gave her full leave to wear what may suit her best and to behave as her inner woman prompts. Thank you, Nathaniel Hawthorne, for your uh, permission for (laughs) Harriet Hosmer to dress however she um... wants. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Um... But yeah, I just really love that idea of like her like hands thrust into like pockets, just walking toward and be like, hey, yeah, what's up? I totally see it. It's so great. Yeah. So she lived with Charlotte Cushman and Ebba Stebbins in their Sapphic household and explained to Wayman Crow she had a relationship with his own daughter, Mary, and described her as my little wife and said <laughs> and described themselves as what we on this side of the ocean call lovers. Uh, of her lovers, she was probably most dedicated, most you know, well-known and dedicated to a woman named Louisa, Lady Ashburton, who was a widowed Scottish noblewoman, and they had a relationship for 25 years. She called Ashburton her sposa, and they uh, alternatively called each other hubby and wedded wife, which is delightful. Yeah. And Hosmer died in Watertown, Massachusetts in 1908 at the age of 77. Wow. Yeah. Then we have our our last person that we're just going to really quickly mention here. Yes, Louise Lander. Nathaniel Hawthorne also visited her and describes his first impression, quote, There are very available points about her and her position. A young woman living almost perfect independence, thousands of miles from her New England home, going fearlessly about these mysterious streets by night as well as day with no household ties, no rule or law, but that within her. I love that. <laughs> I love that so much. She's like, oh, nothing except no what I want or to do. Law, but that within her, I, I want that. And he's just so endlessly sure. fascinated that she can walk yes. around by herself <laughs> yeah. during night and day. So wow! Congrats on walking, Louise. Yes, <laughs> uh, she scandalized critics by cavorting with unmarried men. Lander quote has the reputation of having lived in on uncommonly good terms with some man here in Rome. She is very vain of her figure, and a number of respectable people affirm that she has exposed herself as a model before them in a way that would astonish all modest Yankees. Yeah, and this was information that kind of essentially acted as a scandal that kind of ended her artistic career. Oy, which, remember, we said earlier happened a lot. Exactly. It was like, hey, this lady is an unmarried hoe who's sleeping around with unmarried men. So if it wasn't lesbianism, it was... Something. Um. Yeah, so with all of these women around her 
and the ways in which they're like adopting masculine dress specifically as a way to kind of separate themselves out. Edmonia Lewis, according to a really fantastic book called Improper Bostonians, Lesbian and Gay History from the Puritans to Playland, stated that she emulated both the outward attributes of their unconventional, often masculine attire, as well as their aesthetic independence. Uh, Certainly, though, it seems that Edmonia was sympathetic towards women who romantically loved other women, and she was devoted to her own independence and freedom to live, dress, and express herself as she saw fit. So, yeah, it's just I wish we had more information (laughs) about Edmonia. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like there's only so much that we can kind of infer. Yeah. You know, who's to say? So our our kind of ending goal here, what do we want to say about Edmonia and her life? Amanda, what are your kind of main takeaways and conclusions from learning what we've learned about her? What what do we have to say to kind of wrap (laughs) wrap some things up here? (laughs) I think that she's just a really interesting person, really interesting artist, very self-possessed. And her legacy has sustained so much damage. Mm. <laughs> so much of her, so many of her works have been lost, destroyed, damaged. And it's very unfortunate. And I, I wonder if we will eventually find s- some things that have more information about, you know, her personal life and personal relationships. But it seems very telling to me just how she lived her life and made choices and all of that feels very consistent with queerness and you know to me it's like if she was a lesbian or not it's like kind of irrelevant to me (laughs) but there's there's definitely queer narrative in her story and i don't know just like queer people hang out with each other (laughs) we find each other and clearly that is yeah which i mean they were called the Marmorian flock, so... This is true. (laughs) Henry James was on about it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just so impressed with her, like, as a person. (laughs) Right. Well, and there's this this really great quote, I think, that, like, really hammers home the importance of her and her work. There's a, a, a person named Charmaine Nelson who wrote in 2007, It's hard to overstate the visual incongruity of the Black native female body, let alone that identity in a sculptor within the Roman colony. As the first Black native sculptor of either sex to achieve international recognition within a Western sculptural tradition, Lewis was a symbolic and social anomaly within a dominantly white bourgeois and aristocratic community. So, like, you know, while it's really unfortunate the ways in which she was kind of depict and exoticized in the press, mm-hmm. it's it's incredibly impressive that like she gained so much notoriety and was what kind of one of the the women in this group that received the most fame and was the most well known and was the most household right. name. She traversed some very complicated social waters. <laughs> to make her career happen and just her i i obviously as a white person can't speak to the concept of code switching and like what that's that sort of impact of that on her her world and her art and sort of having to deal with white abolitionists and you know their expectations of her and being so reliant on them and like weaving all these different narratives and her understandings of the social constraints in ways that helped her make a career for herself but also feel like she was being herself and being true Mm. to herself and yes still celebrating her own identity identity and heritage yeah and i mean her her legacy is 
I mean, I'm hoping that we're going to continue to see more and, you know, we're starting uh-huh. to see so. we're starting to see her, you know, work get acknowledged in more and more publications and, uh, you know, museum institutes. The last thing that we kind of wanted to note is that these days, until very recently, Oberlin College itself had a facility named after Edmonia, and it was the Edmonia Lewis Center for Women and Transgender People. And according to their website, it's a, quote, collective of students, staff, and administrators doing the work of transforming existing systems of oppression based on sex, gender, race, class, sexuality, age, ability, size, religion, nationality, ethnicity, and language. So. They're really trying to create this space that is trying to dismantle a lot of the systems that led to Edmonia's exclusion and harassment while at Oberlin. There's a a great quote from a student that speaks to the facility as kind of a method of trying to do right by Edmonia all these years later. This uh, student, Layala Khan, says they and others are working to find a way to continue to honor Lewis's legacy on campus. Khan said, I really do think that as an institution, we failed her back then, and I just really don't want us to do that again. So that's kind of what I could find. I think it's really interesting. And in itself, naming a specifically women-focused and queer-focused organization after her is, you know, no matter how she may have identified like like you said there's queerness in her narrative whether Mm -hmm. it was explicit or not yeah that my friend leaves us with only one more thing (laughs) our lovely segment of how gay were they so amanda how gay was edmonia lewis i think she was probably definitely queer i don't know if she was explicitly a lesbian or not but even though we have not a lot of personal details it really does build this story where you can imagine what her life was kind of like if you can sort of triangulate that you know using like the sort of people that she was with and where she was and what was happening at the time i do feel like there is this very clear picture sort of in my mind of of her like queer life and it's very compelling to me if do you have a number that you would ascribe to a her number for our On a uh, scale. totally not totally not arbitrary totally ever not changing arbitrary. scale uh five of five marmorian flocks of <laughs> lady sculptors yeah beautiful oh man yeah, definitely, definitely gay. <laughs> so for for me, like, I feel like I have to put her on, you know, on a comparison scale with the others in her circle. I think it's really telling that her will, the only thing that she really said about herself is that, you know, she yeah. described herself as a spinster and a sculptor. Mm-hmm. And even the announcement in the tablet of her death was like one yeah. short sentence and it didn't have any of her accomplishments or any details about her life. And so I just have to kind of sit here and go what is just missing and what is deliberate omission Mm -hmm. i I feel like we have to put a lot of of weight on her association with these women and also consider what would these white women Mm -hmm. have been able to get away with in terms of like kind of open boston marriage style relationships Mm -hmm. that she as a black and native woman wouldn't have been able to especially considering how deliberately and carefully she crafted her kind of public persona so i don't think that there's really any way that we can know and so if we're gonna put you know someone like charlotte cushman on i don't know 
10 out of 10 harem scarums. Yeah, 10 out of 10 harem (laughs) scarums. Like, I think I'm going to put Edmonia as like a, you know, four out of 10 jolly women bachelors. Um, (laughs) Just because, I mean, it's it's unfortunate. We will never know. You know, I kind of I kind of go back all the way to our like first episode with Pierre the Pansy Pirate, which (laughs) we know nothing about him except for his name and the fact that he was a dressmaker and he cavorted around with Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed and Jack Rackham. And that was gay (laughs) enough for me. Um, And so I kind of think about it in that way. And, you know, there's really no way to divorce the, the effects in which her kind of racial background was received on what we know of her relationships. Right. So that's kind of where I have landed. Mm-hmm. Well, that is our end. Thank you so much, Amanda, for coming back on the show. Well, it's and a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm still so sad that like it's been a year into this pandemic and you <laughs> live so very close to me. And I've, you know, at the beginning of this, when I was starting to talk to you about like, let's do some episodes together. I want to talk about some art things. <gasps> we could record in person. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> COVID yeah. was like, no. Hopefully at no, some no. point we will get to <laughs> see each other in person once again. We will get to uh, embody the same space on a couch while watching Xena. <laughs> It'll be beautiful. It will. Before we say goodbye to folks, Amanda, please tell our lovely History is Gay listeners where folks can find more of you and your work on the internet. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm on Instagram, Oryxbesia, O-R-Y-X-B-E-S-I-A. I also have a website, amandahelton.com. And I'm Lee. And when I'm not nerding out about old-timey queer folks and desperately wanting shirts that say harem scarum in, like, some crazy, like, Anton LaVey helter-skelter font, I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter and crying about Xena on my couch. History is Gay podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay podcast. We're also on Twitter at History is Gay. And you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at historyisgaypodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can support us on Patreon, where you can get access to Sappho's Salon minisodes, special sneak peeks, the opportunity to have your voice show up in the show, and more. And I know that we've been sort of neglecting the Patreon as of late, but I promise you that there will be some fun things in the coming future, and I'm hoping to actually pull some, some Patreon supporters to see if there's things that you would especially enjoy in your support of us. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website and join the ranks of our patron community along with the amazing Hayden Klamenzer, Abby, and Celine B. Thank you so much, everyone, for your support. You can also buy merch at our History is Gay store. We have t-shirts, we have mugs, we have some fun, fun stuff. We also have our pages from a digital coloring book that we're working on. So click on shop at our website. And lastly, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show, and we can expand our awesome community, which is ever, ever growing. Amanda, would you like to help me close out the show? I really would, yes. All right. That's it for History is Gay. Until next time. Stay queer. And stay curious. Thank you.